Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Bay Area Theater Podcast. I'm Richard Walensky with interviews conducted over the years and during the pandemic with playwrights, directors, actors, and producers. My guest is Sean San Jose, who is the new artistic director of The Magic. Sean San Jose is a playwright. He is an activist, an actor, a director, one of the founders of Campo Santo and several other organizations commissioned recently by Oregon Shakespeare Festival to create a translation of Coriolanus, guest lecturer at UC Berkeley. Loretta Greco was leaving the magic, and there was a search, and it took a long time nationally, and somehow down the block was Sean San Jose, who became the next artistic director. How exactly did that happen? It's wild. I feel a strange sort of homecoming in an odd way. I feel so much of the career path that I've taken was in some ways and in many deep ways rooted here at Magic. So I feel like it took a long time to blossom for this iteration of it. But yeah, I had been lucky, Richard, uh, as you've seen, you know, under the great reign that Loretta Greco had here as producing artistic director. I worked with, got to work with her a lot. She's a close friend of mine. I also got to collaborate with her a lot. So when she decided that she was going to make this move, she had contacted me and said, hey, man, I wanted to let you know before before I announced that this is happening. I thought, oh, wow, this is going to be a void, a huge void of new work and energy and, and place. A little while after that, she and I were talking about a more current project, and she said, hey, um, you know, would you ever consider, would you consider putting your hat in the ring, something like that? And I said, quite directly, hell no. You know, I, I had watched her take this place to such heights and such a great level. I thought, there's no way, no way I could do what you do and what you've done. So no, no thank you. And I have to say, I have this really great luxury of being a part of a group, Campo Santo, that completely fulfills me and I get to work with so many collaborators on work that is important and meaningful and there's never a lack of new stories or new ideas to come so I felt I feel really satisfied in it but late in the process late last year from the committee the search committee a consultant reached out to me really nice folks and they were like hey man we're doing this and your name has appeared a few times in question, and so we wanted, we wanted to reach out and ask you. And, Rich, I have to tell you, even when I got that call, which is a humbling and exciting call, I was like, hey, let me be very real with you from the start. Can you tell me honestly, do you think they're interested in considering something new? Meaning, I love this place, Magic. So I was less interested in angling myself into it but I was more interested in sharing a different vision of what it could be, just so that they were aware of another thing. So I went through a couple of interviews, and it was really great because I could do it with a kind of directness and honesty that maybe 10 or 15 years ago I would have 
done it differently. I think I would have looked for the right answer in a little bit of a way. I would have, you know, pushed my narrative to fit what I thought they sought, but I was not interested in that. I really wanted them to hear what I thought could be a vision for this place that is rooted in the Bay Area and rooted in people of color being centered rightfully. And I thought I could just lay that out for them, you know, without any expectations or or hopes. And that's what I was able to do. And then lo and behold, after still more time after that, they came back and said, we've got it down to finalists. And would you come and talk with us one more time? And I said to them, which, you know, give you a sense of where I was at with it. I said, you know, I have to say, I feel like I've been really honest with you all. And I feel good about the way I articulated the vision. And I don't want to sell you on the idea which as an actor and a producer, I got those muscles to, to really put it into hyperdrive. And I just said, I don't want to do that. I want to let that vision sit with you. And if it feels like something that you all want to support, then it becomes exciting. But if it's an idea that I have that I'm selling to you, it can't work and it won't work. And then they came back about a week later and, and I got the, the gift of being offered the position. What we're talking about here is what the magic was under Loretta and before that, and what you want to do. And it appears to me that the start of that is that Camposanto begins a residency at the magic, which is something completely new. Totally. I mean, I think that's part of what they recognized in my uh, my layout, my vision of it, and also what they were responding to. I have to say, too, what's been most gratifying, Richard, is the way that people in the community here and even folks outside of it have responded in this immediate announcement of the news so favorably and so positively. I feel really great because I do know that it's an us thing. It isn't just me. I think what people are responding to is that I am part of a group. I am part of a city. I'm part of my neighborhood. I'm part of my cultures. And so I think that people could recognize that the work that I do is connected with so much more than a singular or personal vision. And I think that is what the committee, uh, thankfully, and the board of directors here responded to. I mean, that was one of the questions they asked me, you know, right off top. So what are you going to do if this were to happen, how would you choose, you know, your work with Camposanto and, and doing this? How could you move on from that? And I said, I wouldn't. Why would I give that up? I think the sort of binary way of thinking of it is all wrong. I think the collective approach is the approach, especially in this day and age. We need to come together. We need to share space, resource, energy, community, artistry, ideas, and that starts for me with making magic a home for more people. And that would be, you know, including Camposanto into it, as opposed to me splitting out my thinking, my ideas, my energies, or even the artists that I get to work with. And so it's about rooting people in here as opposed to separating it out. There's one other aspect, which we sort of talked a little bit about before we went on the air, which is that your focus is on new plays. Loretta's focus was on reworked second productions frequently, trying to get something that's already started, say, at South Coast, into shape 
Whereas you're talking about going more back to the basics. Is that correct? Yeah. I mean, I, I think in a general way, I certainly follow definitely Magic's legacy of creating bold new plays. And in Loretta's time here too, in, in creating brand new productions, I think that that's accurate though, Richard, that I, I think the way that I am looking at it is it much more about development and making this place a hub, if you will, of activity and development as opposed to uh, more of a laboratory for plays, if that makes sense. So I, I think we're much more interested in opening and expanding the ideas of what plays can be, what new play looks like, what a theater in general can can be and look like. And certainly Loretta gave great investment and support to the writers and what that did for their career. So many that we could name whose careers really were buoyed by the support and investment. And I think that's right, you know, whether that meant making the play a more quote-unquote ready shape for another production or letting it be finessed or reworked again after initial work on it, things like that, or committing to a, a writer for several productions and such. But yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's of the same world. You know, we're all interested in writers and newness. I, I just, I'm more excited by the idea, like the work in Campo Santo, that goes from conception to production. So hearing someone come up with an idea or a question, really. Being out in Fort Mason is a particular disadvantage because of public transit. It was kind of hard to keep the theater going, and I saw a cutback in plays. How does this affect you coming in, knowing that you really need to strengthen things at the magic? Yeah, I mean, I think that's, that's always been the task at hand for any theater maker in the Bay Area, especially. A, we have so much activity, and B, real estate is, is so prohibitive for groups to work with. But I, I think the challenge becomes less about how do we replicate a regional theater model or previous season output, but how do we make this place a destination, a den of activity, a hub of creation. And I think that is why I go back to something like having Cabo Santo be the home resident company among multiple residencies that we'll have, among multiple new programs. So I think what we need to do first is make this place home so people will want to, first of all, feel welcomed into a theater, whether you've been part of a season, whether you're a so-called regular theater goer, whether you're a Magic subscriber or not, but that this place feels like home and that we're seeing all kinds of plays, not just from the quote-unquote Magic Theater season, but other artists we're interested in, groups that we're collaborating with, groups we're making home for, different mediums that we're sharing with our audiences and letting them turn us out on new things. And I think once we make it a destination, I think dividends, you know, come out of that. And some of those dividends may be financial. We're certainly going to aim to have more people walking through this building than we've had in recent years, just by virtue of how many activities we're going to be presenting. Let's go back for a second to the pandemic. Yeah. A lot of 
organizations immediately created all mm-hmm. kinds of streaming programs on the web and constantly keeping their names in front, trying to get what they can. Magic kind of faded into the background. I don't recall too much going on with magic. So when you came in, you were looking at a slightly different place than what the other places were doing. I think that's really accurate, Richard. I think that magic is an example of a not huge and not well-fortified, financially speaking, institution, even with its legacy status and 55 years of creating work and, you know, the fortune of having a home here in San Francisco, physical home. But yeah, there was not a lot of activity. And I think there was a lot of just sustaining, I don't want to say life support, but sustaining it so it will make it to the next stage or to the point where it's ready to drop. And I think because of the great machinery that Loretta had created here, not only was the organization built to create and support the premiere and the production of new plays, but it had multiple plays in the pipeline, you know, on the train tracks, if you will, for production, like many theaters. But here more than ever, where the one thing that Magic has invested in is the production of the play. So much so as that the building was closed, you know, while it rehearsed, while it developed while it had laboratories and then would be open for production. So everything was built around this live communion moment. And yeah, I get it. I know most of the theaters are built around that too, but a lot of them also have the flexibility, the depth to be doing more outreach or education or laboratories and such. Magic is invested in these bold new plays. So when the pandemic hit, it looks like everything did kind of stop. And it came at a moment to it seems, I wasn't involved, so I'm imagining that they knew they were in a transition as they were looking towards new new leadership, you know, in terms of artistic director. And yeah, in the beginning, I know they did a podcast series with a lot of the great writers and artists that they work with, responding very personally and humanly to the onset of Shelter in Place. And then they did a great radio play, really, of the great writer Carol Churchill that Loretta directed, Jake Rodriguez, sound design. Outside of doing their new works lab online, there wasn't a lot. And so coming back to your point, I think more than ever, it makes me want to inject the space and the energy with these new ideas that have been, albeit only 18 months, but I think they're part of a a burgeoning aesthetic of people thinking in different ways about performance. That doesn't mean like everything is going to be online, but meaning that there are ways of thinking of it visually and sonically in different ways and also just how we can reach people in different ways. And we're behind on that for sure. I went to the website and saw three plays, Monument or Four Sisters, The Sloth Play, The Kind Ones, The Broken Machine. These, I believe, were put into motion before you came along. Is that correct? Yeah, that's what I was referring back to too, Richard. They had these three plays and more readied prior to the shelter in place and and everything shutting down, ready to go, you know, or at least in line to go. So yeah, 
And they're still going to go on, I guess. Yes. When? We start really soon. Man, we're going into rehearsal with the genius Taylor Mack in August. And Loretta Greco is the director of that. So it seems so fitting that the transition and the reopening will be helmed by Loretta and leading us to this new era. And that will start rehearsals in August and will world premiere a brand new Taylor Mac piece in September. And then we have the other two pieces that will premiere in the spring of 2022. Is Taylor in it? No. This is one of the other floors in Taylor Mac's building of creative genius. So rather than of late, we've gotten the gift of getting to see Taylor Mac perform and drive these, whether one night only song-driven performances or the massive, epic 24-hour. But Taylor Mack also writes great plays, like the one that Taylor wrote for Magic several years ago here. H-I-R, that was it? Yes, yeah. And there's also one that was on Broadway. Yes, a riff off of Titus Andronicus, I believe. So what is this play by Taylor Mack that we're going to be seeing? What's the name of it? What's it about? Yeah, it's called Joy and Pandemic. Uh, Not this pandemic. It is a massive undertaking, this three-act historical piece, looking at, I think, the way that we, we live through fears, anxieties, through moments of societal upheaval like a pandemic. And it starts in 1918 in Philadelphia, a teacher of art for small children. And out of this small event, so much breaks open, whether economic, racial, under this cloud of a oncoming pandemic that is soon to take over the country. And then it leaps forward in time after that to the 1950s. And people looking back at a pandemic, maybe somewhat in the way that we... We can now maybe start to look back at our epidemic of the AIDS. Uh, Yeah, I I can't myself even begin to even assess anything that's happened in these last year year and a half, these last many months. But something bigger like the, the AIDS epidemic, I think we can start to have some kind of longer view looking back 30 plus years at it. And I think Taylor is so genius at, at both rooting it with the, the present resonance of what's happening here, but really investing in, in, in this family and these, these characters, a breakdown of family, a breakdown of racial divide, a breakdown of cultures, and a breakdown of class all in, in this play. And it's funny because Taylor Mack is so funny. So, it, so it's all of those things. I was thinking back too when you were like, so these three plays were there, and there was this moment where I was like, What's going to happen? You know, because one of the big pitches, they're like, here's the question, you know, what would you propose for a season if if you were to be artistic? And that's the thing that, you know, your brain goes into overdrive. So excited. And of course, off the top of my head, threw out 50 ideas. Da, 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 da. And so I have that burning in my head the whole time that they're considering this. And then when you come back and everything comes to be that I I get this great position. Then they say, well, we've made these commitments to these three writers and these three productions. So what you going to do? 
And then the first thought is like, oh, wow, I'm so excited for these other pieces. But then the first thing they say is the first piece is Taylor Mac. So I was completely over the moon, over the rainbow, if you will. Again, going back to how magic has affected me, I saw the Lily's Revenge, I guess, 10 years ago now. There hasn't been anything like that before or since of such creativity, such openness, such wildness, such newness in a space, you know, a way that you look at an evening, the way that you look at a play, an experience, a a cultural collision. It was amazing. And I don't think that anyone can look to replicate anything like that, even Taylor Mac themselves. So it it was really just a thrill because I've I've followed every single performance that Taylor Mac has done since then because of The Lily's Revenge. So I, I was really excited, in other words, Richard, about this being the first one and the first one that I get to be connected with as artistic director. I've had the fortune of interviewing him a couple of times, interviewing Judy, excuse me. Absolutely, absolutely. (laughs) A couple of times. Moving a little away from that, one of the other founders of Campo Santo was Margot Hall, Mm -hmm. who is now the new artistic director of Lorraine Hansberry. Are you planning to work with her? Well, it's funny you should say that, Richard, because one of the first conversations I had was with Margot when I found out about magic. And I told her, of course, I said, I think one of the exciting things is we get to have Campo Santo be the home resident company. And I said, but look, Margot, you are doing this new era of your own with the the legendary and historic Lorraine Hansberry Theater. What if, what if we use this collective power and while... Lorraine Hansberry is seeking out a new home in Oakland, California for the Lorraine Hansberry Theater. You should have a residency here at Magic Theater, too. So Lorraine Hansberry Theater is going to be one of the first groups to have residency here as well. It feels so right. Of course, I I admire Margot so, and she is my sister, and we, of course, work together so much. But also, outside of Campo Santo, I've been inspired and blown away by all the moves she makes, the performances, certainly. But her thinking and her grounding in the community, especially at this point, a long standing, it feels, again, Richard, it's less about there's that over there and this here and that down the road, but more shouldn't we, oughtn't we all come together and use the collective power and everybody eats with win-win-win, audience, community, artists. We have the space. That's the greatest asset you can have in the Bay right now. There's another space, and you've worked there, I believe, at least once, and that's out at Cal Shakes at the Bruns. Uh, are you planning to do any co-productions with them? I don't think so. I have nothing geared for it. You know, the idea of co-production, I want to look at it just, there's so many long-standing titles, ideas in the so-called American theater that I think are worthy of being broken open and inspected. I don't want to destroy things, but I want to create proper definitions for what we're aiming for and what we have been aiming for. And so the idea of co-production really feels like a, a machination, an idea of managing directors in theater. How can we do a production cheaper together? That's cool. I get it. You know, I come from a a poor theater, so I get that. But I'm much more interested in, you know, real electric connections. Like, what what can we do together 
that yes, will maybe save us an overall energy or an overall finances, but is going to reap greater rewards and dividends for everyone involved. So I think there's a model that's akin to co-production, but is much more about finding people that feel the same and have the same shared goals in mind, which is about bringing community together and about empowering people and especially empowering folks even here in our beautiful diverse so-called progressive bay area that have been woefully in some cases immorally underrepresented in our own cities so i think aligning that way is going to be exciting and also just shows us in the bay even us in the bay like look at what all is here in the bay like we don't need to always be looking outside our own bay for things in music and theater and poetry or anything you know we we have it all here and we should we should relish that and highlight it sean san jose you're an actor from the perspective of an actor are you planning to do any acting I would think not in the immediate term. A shift that happened for me, I mean, I'm always ready to perform, Richard, and I love writers so much. So I certainly am not stopping by any means, but I'm not putting it at the top of the agenda. Like find a, a play where I could act in or find something I could really get highlighted in. I, I'm much more thrilled by these ideas. And similarly, when there was a point when we were kind of rolling along at Campo Santo after our first 10 years or whatever, when I was in the middle of a performance and I found myself looking while I was on stage at things in the audience from a producer's eye, which is to say, I was looking at like, why is that seat moved out? Why didn't we clean under that one seat? And is that person tearing up that program? We can't use it for later. In other words, my full self commitment as a performer, I wasn't doing the same thing I would task anyone else that we're collaborating with to do. So I think I have to get my head right if I'm gonna if I'm gonna do that. And it will take a minute before I do that. I want to get these programs underway and, and, and see what evolves and comes out of it. But I'm always down to work with these great writers and artists that we work with. So by no means, Richard, is this the day where I put the lock on the cabinet for performing because I have a, a new title. I just think it'll have to be when the project comes along, it'll come along. Sean San Jose, let's go back in your career. Uh, you did a long interview for the Mercury News and kind of talked extensively about your first theater experience, mm -hmm. which was a revival of Buried Child at the Magic, mm -hmm. and that got you started. And then suddenly that interview skips to 1990 in your first production where you're an actor at the Magic, but there's a whole period in there. So let's talk a little about how you suddenly went from going, hey, I want to see a play to suddenly being in one. So what happened after you went to the Magic at, what, nine or ten? How did you get involved in theater No, that's the crazy thing, Richard. I was like 17 or 18. Really? So, yeah. So that's what I think made it such epiphany-like for me. I was at a point in my life as a irresponsible, drifting, headstrong, unemotionally tapped in child in a big family, feeling like I was an outsider 
everywhere I went and then fell into this place in theater that felt completely different than me, but allowed an access point inside of me where I could feel things. And I think that that just opened up so much for me, so much for me, as a, just as a human being. But it also gave me a, an idea of what I wanted to spend my time doing. So it was really quick. It was like learning to swim. I jumped in. And as soon as I saw that, then I wanted to keep doing that. And I happened to fall right into performing. And then I did what everyone does. I was like, well, this is what they do. And I was like 19 or whatever. You go to New York and you study how to do it. And so I moved to New York and and then I came back to California after only a few years in New York. I missed home too much. And around the same time, my mother got sick. And so I needed for myself to be back in California. And I met a writer when I was, it was one of the first plays I ever, ever did as like an 18-year-old, this great writer, Aaron Cressida Wilson, who I still work with and still dear friend of mine to this day. And she said, hey, I'm going to have one of my plays done at Magic Theater. And everyone, you know, everyone goes, oh, man, that's the place where Fool for Love happens. So it's always exciting. And I, of course, knew it, uh, someone who grew up in San Francisco. And I got to be in that play, you know, as a pretty, pretty young, I guess, I don't know, 21 or something like that. I got my equity card, the whole shot. So I sort of became on the paper kind of a, a grown-up, you know what I mean? I had a profession. I had a union card. I was doing the thing that I wanted to do. And so it happened very quickly for me. I feel very lucky and fortunate in that regard. It's deeper than that, though, Richard, because with that thing, I had, of course, Aaron Cressida Wilson, who I had already had a close connection with, but the casting director at that time at Magic Theater, the first time I got cast here, was an incredible woman by the name of Barbie Stein. Now, Barbie Stein changed the way, I mean, she changed my heart, but she changed the way I perceived myself. It was like being given um, a self-empowerment course from a casting director. Now, it's usually the other way around. Like, casting directors usually are the ones that tell you you're chosen or you're not chosen. Wait in this line, don't call me, don't bother me, you know? When I walked through the door and met her, she said, oh, hey, I'm Barbie Stein. You're, you're Sean San Jose, right? I understand that the writer wanted you for this part. What a coup to have you here. Man, can you imagine that? That energetically what that does? And it just opened up everything. But I, 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 I talk so much about it because she meant so much to what Bay Area empowerment can can be. So it's not just the plays, but it's what kind of power we can have and give to each other. So she was one of the first people I ever knew that was saying, here's a part for a young man in the play. You read for it, Sean, you Filipino, Puerto Rican, you read for it, Coleman, you, you, you're black, you read for it. She said, it's about the actor's ability, man. And so she was one of the first people that started breaking out the box and making other people expand their, their visions about things, you know, gender, sex, culture, all of it through casting, which we normally see in a very narrow box of, you know, I hold the headshot and I give these two some great director mind to pick the person to do it. But she was the one that let everyone that worked with her know, like, 
not only is there this enormous ocean of talent here, but within that talent pool, you haven't even begun to see what each individual can do. So it, it really changed me. And, and it was meeting people with such heart and vision like Barbie that allowed me, when I met the great Luis Saguar and met Margot Hall, that we were already had our minds expanded so that we thought, hey, we're just four people who think that these stories should be on the stages of our theaters too with people that look, sound like this, that, and the other in our neighborhoods, in our bloodlines, in our culture. And these writers are writing with such power and potency and imagination that should be told. If we hadn't been gifted that mind blowing expansion prior to that, I never would have gotten the the guts, the you know, the drive to do something, make a move like create a group like Campo Santo. Did you ever think about going off to Hollywood and getting into film? Or was the pull of theater and the pull of the Bay Area just too strong for you? I mentioned I came back in I think like nineteen ninety one or something like that and I had been living in Los Angeles. I went from New York from a short few years living there to Los Angeles. I wanted to be closer to home. I just missed my mom. Who'd have thunk uh, this kid that thought he was so cool, he had to leave the Bay Area. And then as soon as I got off that first plane in JFK, I ran straight to the phone booth and put a thousand quarters in and called my mom. She said, what happened? And I said, nothing. I just miss you. <laughs> and so then when I got to Los Angeles, that was the idea. You know, I would be spend time there. My mother got sick and my father got sick and I came back to be with them and they battled AIDS and they passed away and they passed away within a year and a half of each other. There was something obviously spiritually and, and, and familiarly about being here in the city I was raised in by my mom and my aunties and my grandmother that initially kept me here, but there's just so much beautiful possibility here. And then suddenly I, I didn't want to leave. I never wanted to leave. And I always felt like, well, New York is New York and Los Angeles is Los Angeles. They're not trends. <laughs> They're not going to go away. They're not going to not be the strongholds of industry. So they will be there if I ever have the desire to try that avenue. But I also tapped into even deeper than initially responding to theater. I tapped in with the people I was able to work with in Campo Santo, Luis Saguar, Margot Hall, most prominently in, in, in the writers. And then when we started working, it had the opportunity to be at Intersection for the Arts with Deborah Cullinan. It was like those three people changed the way my heart and mind connected to the work we were doing. So everything, it's kind of like how I started talking with you. Everything was filled. I was full up. I mean, I was working my butt off too, Richard, so I didn't have a chance to sort of think like, well, I'll swing down to Los Angeles and do that. But also the fulfillment of, of being in a company that is always developing these stories for community is so exciting and so thrilling and time-consuming too that I, it never... It never got to a conversation within myself, even, would I do this, would I do that. August 5th, starting at 6 p.m., 
there's an event at the Magic, kind of a celebration of your inception as artistic director? In some ways, yeah. I mean, one of the first major tasks I was confronted with or realized I, I had to address when I got this appointment was, hey, there's a major fundraising event that needs to happen at this time of year, and you've just been hired, so you have a couple months to get it together, and it's Magic's annual gala, the big blowout fancy fundraising affair. And I just felt like for my first event, especially, I, I, I couldn't do something that is a gala. I, I feel like I was hired and my vision for this place is about opening the doors up, inviting people in to make home as opposed to creating something more uh, financially exclusive. Though necessary, we definitely need the money. It just didn't seem like the best first step. And I also feel like in this moment and time we're in, we should be celebrating vaccinated safely outdoors right by the bay with fresh breeze blowing in our faces. And it's all healthy air like that. It, just to come together after a year and a half is amazing. And I, again, alluding back to what I said, I've been so gratified by the positive and hopeful responses about this new era to come at Magic that I felt like we should seize this moment and really embrace that energy to say, hey, you feel excited, I feel excited. Let's come together on that excitement alone without having to attach projects or premieres initially to it. But let us do what we really do at our core when we commune in theaters anyway, which is to come together as a community. And so we're going to have a big party. Uh, we're going to have a VIP to start it. Uh, if people want to really support the, the theater, give a little extra money, and we're going to reveal in detail the, the plans for the next few years. And then we're just going to blow it out. It's going to be like a block party, Richard. It's going to be wild, right? All out on the open open air at Fort Mason, overlooking the bay. We're going to have DJs, DJ Lady Ryan, our San Francisco Poet Laureate, the great Tongo Ison Martin is going to give us an opening to the, the ceremony. We're going to have dance performances, Sam A productions and rising rhythms out of my own mission district here in Margo Hall and Rotimi Agbabiaka are going to join me in the VIP as part of the residencies. The great Renaissance artist from Campo Santo, Juan Amador, DJ One Way Possible, is curating all these performers. Genius Wiley Jazz Trio, this out-of-this-world jazz drummer is leading this group, is going to be there. So I say all this, say it's going to be all of those activities at once. So it's going to be a block party, but it's also to give folks a, a, a sense of what kind of programming we're going to be expanding into here at Magic and what kind of artists and what kind of audiences and community you can share it with. So in some ways, it's a grand peek into the next few years, this new era at Magic. But it's also really just a come one, come all from $25 up. A couple of quick questions about the pandemic and Telemac. Now, the Telemac thing will be live in the theater. Will it be recorded so people could see it streaming if they don't want to come to the theater? At this point, with everything new coming out, it's looking like we ought to be preparing to 
to do, do a sort of dual offering of both live and online as well. You know, Richard, as well as I do, it's it's a little bit day to day with these variants and trying to talk sense into people to get safe and vaccinated. But we will do a safe vaccinated audience and performers and staff run of it in a more limited seating way for sure. But yes, it's every intent for it to be live. We need to come back together and we need to come back together under the glorious words and vision of Taylor Mac. I mean, it's going to be great just to be together and then it's going to have all the, the glorious gifts of, of being in a Taylor Mac play and to have Loretta Greco directing it feels like a gift to me personally. So I can rest assured that everything is going to be fine with the first production I'm overseeing. Just the idea of being in an audience watching live theater you know, hey, <laughs> there's nothing like it. You show the vaccination, you get your head checked for the temperature, and you're sitting with a mask, and you're sitting in a more sparsely uh, populated audience. But we're all there, and it's, you can feel the energy of people sitting next to you, and there's a live human being on stage talking to you. Yeah, I, I think we need it so so badly for our psyche, for our spirit, for our creativity, for community really uh, not to overstate it but we really do need it one final question during the period of the pandemic beginning and before you came to the magic what were you doing how was sean san jose living during that year like everyone i spent all my time indoor mainly and i think that i may have been more more um, locked in on that than others but we were like so many theater companies. We were in the middle of rehearsal for an incredible new play by the amazing writer, local writer, Star Finch, this play that she had written for a couple of songs called Side Effects. Like everyone else, had to shut it down. And so there was that, that energy. And our group, Campo Santo, one Amador of our group, got us immediately onto a, a format where we could do something kind of like Zoom, but it wasn't, it wasn't Zoom where we could see each other on video. And we started doing weekly sessions of writing sessions. And I think people were unaware or unconscious how badly we needed to just see each other's faces, hear each other laugh. And then we did it under the, the idea that we would do our writing lab. And so people started generating just immense amounts of writing comparatively to what we had done in the past. And I think there was a, an unspoken urgency or need to, to let things out and to connect through creativity that way. But who to thunk for someone like me who believes so deeply in the basic power of being live and able to look someone in the eyes live and tell a story simply and directly that a, a computer box would, would give us so much uh, hope and connection. And I certainly needed it. I did a lot of that. I, I spent a lot of time writing and I was able to connect with some of the folks that I, I, I collaborate with, um, even outside of Campo Santo. So there were certainly silver linings, but there's nothing like, you know, being able to visit your family being able to walk the streets of San Francisco or even right across the bridge. So I don't think we're going to know what the effects are for several years to come, Richard. Like 
the scars are still developing and then we'll figure out what they are. But I do know that we need to safely be back together because that human contact is everything. This idea that technology is a replacement, that was revealed as not true. I mean, it certainly offered us new ways to access each other, but is not a replacement by any means. You've been listening to an interview with Sean San Jose, the new artistic director of the Magic Theater in Fort Mason. The Magic Summer event is scheduled for Outdoors at the Magic on August 5th, starting at 6 p.m. For tickets and more information, you can go to magictheater.org. I'm Richard Wolinski on the Bay Area Theater Podcast. Mm-hmm.